Well, good morning, everybody. First Sunday of the year, so happy New Year. And if you were here last week, happy Renew Year. Ah, okay, anyways. I just needed to get that out, put that in my notes. Um, Anyways, before we actually uh, get into our passage this morning, um, I'd like to share an anecdote with you. Um, I came across this uh, this week during my studies, and it's regarding actually a comedy series. Um, It's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is a comedy science fiction um, series created by the author Douglas Adams. Originally a radio comedy broadcast on BBC in 1978, it was later adopted to other formats, including stage shows, novels, comic books, a TV series, I think a video game, and a movie, a feature film. Um, In this series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, the supercomputer called Deep Thought is tasked with coming up with the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. See that behind me there? After 7.5 million years of painstaking calculations, the computer reveals that the answer is the number 42. However, it fails to explain the meaning because it does not know the ultimate question. Right? Why give an answer if you don't have the question? As a result, the Earth is built as a second supercomputer to provide the ultimate question. And I found that totally fascinating in this series by Douglas Adams. So in 1993, Douglas Adams explains the reasoning behind choosing the number 42 as the answer to the ultimate question. And quote, he says, the answer to this is very simple. It was a joke. It had to be a number, an ordinary number, smallish number, and I chose that one. Binary representations, base 13, Tibetan monks are all complete nonsense. I sat at my desk, stared into the garden, and thought, 42 will do. I typed it out, end of story, end of quote. Ultimate question, ultimate answer to the ultimate question And it was a joke. And as I read on, I'm like, okay, I got to Google all this stuff and figure out what this guy is getting at. It was a joke, right? Okay, you guys with me? It's a joke. Yet, MIT mathematicians, scientists, and the likes have wasted years and resources trying to attribute some deep symbolic significance to the number 42. Base 13, 6 multiplied by 9 will equal 42. So does x to the third, y to the third, z to the third equals 42. And all these calculations, trying to find this answer and reasoning behind the number 42. But why seek the significance and an answer if you don't know the question? I am not an MIT mathematician. I only have my associate's degree. And this makes no sense. You don't have the original ultimate question, and yet you're seeking an answer for what? What is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything? This brings us to our passage this morning, which I titled, 
the ultimate exchange. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We will be in verses 17 to 22. Mark chapter 10, 17 to 22. And just so you could follow along with this passage, at least with this narrative of how Mark... um, historically recorded this real event, this real exchange between Jesus and a man. Um, This outline, I hope, will help you as you think through this and study the word with me here. And the passage reads, starting at verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This is the word of God. So today in our passage this morning, as the screen says behind me, we're going to look at these three realities in this narrative, this historical exchange between Jesus and this man. Three realities that every person must know regarding eternal life. Three realities that you and I, anybody that we come across, should know about eternal life. So let us look at the first reality here, the ultimate question in this ultimate exchange in verses 17 to 20. Again, the passage reads, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, and he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So for context, we're parachuting in right here in chapter 10. So from chapters 1, verse 14 to 8, verse 30, Jesus is preaching the gospel of God. It states that in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 14, he's preaching the gospel And he's exercising his authority throughout these chapters as they're recorded. He's doing miracles. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's feeding thousands of people to affirm himself as the messenger, as the son of God. Why? Because he is the Christ, the son of God, as it states in chapter 1, verse 1. And so from chapter 8, 31 to 1052, Jesus is teaching on discipleship. He has now his apostles. He has people following, he has disciples following after him. And he's teaching the disciples the prediction of his death. That one day he will go to the cross and die for the sins of many. And so here we pick up in our passage in chapter 10, and you could look a little bit 
at the top there in verse 10 that Jesus was going out of a home somewhere in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and he's continuing his journey to Jerusalem, his journey to ultimately die. I just, it's so consistent as we finish the Advent season, right behind Pastor Adam's message, that we have the infinite infant child being born. Think about that. He was born to die for us. And so scripture continues here, and you have that as the overarching context of Jesus' plan of salvation for everybody, for eternal life. Now we pick up here in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up. And scripture describes this man as extremely rich in Luke chapter 18, verse 23. Young in Matthew 19, 20, and 22, and a ruler in Luke 18, 18. So, of course, church tradition, probably your printed Bible, labels him as the rich young ruler. We know this story. Most of you heard this story or read this. He was probably one of the officials in charge of the local synagogue, not a scribe or priest, but a well-off layman and a young one, which was interesting because that position was usually reserved for older men. So here he is, young guy, part of this layman position. In Jewish society, they looked at wealth as a mark of God's blessing. We've always seen that in the Old Testament, right? Blessings and curses. If you're doing something good, you're getting blessed with all these riches from God. He's looked at, and I'm trying to build this character for you of him, that he's made it. He's living the life. He's climbed the corporate ladder faster than any other. He was that spiritual guy at the synagogue. He's serving. He's a go-getter. He's well-to-do, successful. He's serving, and he's respected among the community. This is the man. Now, everybody reads, or at least most people have read, and I myself have read this when I first read this passage, that you may interpret this passage as dealing with wealth and the wealthy. But I'm proposing this narrative speaks on human values. And I want you to put that in your back pocket today as we go through this message. What the man values is the key to this passage. Now, consider Pastor Adam's message last Sunday on renewal. If you weren't here, he challenged us by asking, what is your daily norm? Is what you're doing in all aspects of your life matter? Out of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, it reads, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, and yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So here in 2 Corinthians, Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church is to focus on the eternal and not the temporal. And it is consistent with this ultimate exchange between Jesus and this man. As I was studying this passage, the questions 
immediately come to mind, and as you go through it, it should bring up in your mind the same thing. What or who are you pursuing to continually be renewed daily? What are you doing? What are you focusing on? Where are you spending all your energy? What are you reading? What are you seeing? Everything that you're doing. What are you doing to renew your mind? Ask yourself, what do you value? What do you value? But notice in the passage here, the man's demeanor. He ran up, knelt, and asked, and the man's eager approach, his kneeling posture, his formal address, also suggest a degree of urgency and seriousness. Who here has kids? Okay, who here was a kid? (laughs) Should be everybody, right? Kids are inquisitive and curious with a zeal and desire to know. I see how the parents are being like, yup, yeah, yeah. They want to know things. They want to learn. They want answers. They have questions. A million of them. Too many of them. You just want to switch them off. You can't. Question after question that demand answers. And you can't give them false answers. You have, a, you have to give them reality. Notice he dresses Jesus at the beginning of his question as good teacher. Notice that. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Interesting, there's no example in the first century or earlier of anyone being called good teacher. Yet this man goes and calls Jesus good teacher. In early Judaism, addressing a human as good was impossible, was not impossible, but rare. So what is this man trying to do? Is he trying to flatter Jesus? Good teacher, he runs up, I have questions. He's successful, he's respected. Kneeling before Jesus, the man asks the eternal question, which begins the ultimate exchange. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here, as he makes this statement, it's interesting, the verb to do, which is commonly used in questions in which a person plans about what he wants to do. Like, I need the plan. Tell me. Let me set this up. What do I need to do? How do I need to plan this to inherit or to obtain eternal life, salvation? He's basically saying, what should I consider to do in order that I may obtain salvation? But before Jesus answers the man's question, he responds in verse 18. Notice with me. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why is Jesus asking this question to the man and then answers? Some interpreters take the approach that Jesus is linking himself with God. I'm like, oh, okay. It's no denial. He's the son of God, right? He's doing miracles. I don't think Jesus is imposing that and saying, hey, look at me, I'm God. He's not denying it, but he's not saying it outright. 
I take the position that Jesus is seeking to have the man rethink the idea of good. Jesus wants him to consider what is good. Since there's no one that is ultimately good but God, who alone is the source and standard of good. God is the only source and standard of good. And so he wants the man to think about what he just said. Why? I take because in verses 20 to 22, you'll see how the man responds. So the point here is that Jesus is exposing the man's understanding of good as something measured by human achievement. Remember his status. Remember the character of this man and all that he's done and the successes that he has and the respect that he has from the community, the religious, the society. He's up there. He's serving in a position that's reserved for older, wiser But Jesus is exposing this. No one is good except God alone, who is the true source and standard of good. Jesus wanted the man to see himself in the context of God's perfect character, not what society values and what he has done. I think we've all done it. I've done it. Right? You look around yourself and you're like, yeah, I'm not too bad. Right? You always want to like, pick on the people below you. Right? And justify your position and status at work, at home, at church. Look at me. I'm not as bad as, or I hold this position. But Jesus is already like, just to me, at least if you read the text for yourself, he's like, no, the standard is God. Are you good? Really, if God is your standard, are you good? It's not what he needs to do, but what he needs to know about God and humanity in order to inherit eternal life. That's what Jesus is driving. The man is thinking, hey, from me to you, from good guy to good rabbi, tell me. Just like everything I've done so far, just tell me what, I need, what, do I, what do I need to do, and I'll do it, and I'll check the box, and I get, right? But no, Jesus is gospelizing him, right? Spurgeon statement, Adam brought that up last week, of being gospelizers or being gospelized. <laughs> Jesus is telling this man, no, no, stop comparing and stop looking at what you've done, your works righteousness and all this religiosity, stop it. Jesus is saying God is creator. God is holy. God is good. Man is sinful and depraved. This is what I want to tell you, the man. This is what scripture wants to tell us. Today, God is holy and good. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. We, we know all the other scriptures that tell us how depraved we are in Romans. There's none good, none that does good. 
Not even one. The man is seeking God in order to receive eternal life. He's seeking what he needs to do to obtain eternal life. He's not seeking God. He's seeking what to do. The man already had a wrong approach to salvation. He didn't understand the purpose of the law, which was to show the goodness of God and reveal the sinfulness of man. I remember this passage when we went through Romans in Romans 7, 7, as Jeff preached through it. It says, I, Paul, would not have come to know sin except through the law. Whether it's Judaism or it's some claim of Christianity that like, hey, you need to follow the law and you'll get to heaven. You need to follow the Ten Commandments and you'll get to heaven. No. The law was to expose our sin. Period. Look how holy and good God is and his word, and then here we are. So Jesus uses the law to draw out the man's error. Notice in verse 19, Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus starts quoting the second tablet of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, then substitutes the prohibition of coveting with do not defraud, just in case you check, right? Jesus throws that in there. Why? Perhaps Jesus also wants to make special application to the man because he's rich, he's wealthy, he's well-to-do, Right? And the rich are not needing to covet, usually, but likely to defraud. I'm like, man, look at Jesus. He's just like, he's making sure the guy doesn't have like, but, but, but. Then Jesus includes the last commandment of the first tablet, honor your father and mother, which is the only commandment dealing with human relationships. So obviously, there's this exchange Jesus is drawing out this man's error of how to obtain eternal life. The ultimate exchange continues with the man's response in verse 20. And he says, and he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. This time the man addresses Jesus simply as teacher, omitting good. I thought that was funny. Sorry. Um, Jesus' lesson on the word good in verse 18 made the man discouraged in using it again. He's like, oh, man, I'm not going to make that mistake twice. If I say good teacher, he's like, uh-oh, he's going to correct me again. Um, but for me, I, that, that's where, I, you know, Jesus is not asserting himself as God because if he knew the man, right, wouldn't, if God was standing in front of you, wouldn't you be like, good teacher, good teacher, you're good teacher. Hey, you're God, you're God, you're God, you're good, you're good. But he doesn't do that. He, 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 drops, he drops good. But interesting, look at the passage. The man responds with a prideful response. Not only do I know the commandments, but I've kept them all. Why? He's just like, I did, I, did, I did them ever since I was a kid. I'm doing good. I'm good. I'm doing all these things. 
I kept up from my youth up. The man goes as far as referencing his uh, bar mitzvah at age 13. He says, up until my youth, right, when young boys are obligated to observe the commandments at age 13, bar mitzvah means son of commandments. So he's come of age since 13. I'm sure he's in his, his adult life. And he's like, I've kept every single one of them. I've done all of them. You guys all read the book of James. You're like, you break one, you break them all. And this guy's just like, yeah, I, I got that. I did that. I did them. I'm good. In his own eyes, in, in, in his own eyes and in society's eyes, he was a man who should inherit eternal life. The man is claiming good on the outside, but lacking in understanding what is needed to inherit eternal life. He has deceived himself and those around him. He thinks he is good enough to inherit eternal life. How do we know? Jesus tells him the eternal, the eternal answer in verse 21. Look with me. The eternal answer. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. Up to this point of the passage, the narrative has gone from the man running up to Jesus, their exchange about how to obtain eternal life, and now we reach the climax, the only answer to the ultimate question. Here it is. And it's not number 42. But Mark slows down this narrative, describes Jesus' affection toward the man. If you read Mark through the whole book, Mark is throwing in the word immediately, 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 immediately throughout the whole book. Like this thing's like going. It's just, it's moving. And he slows this down here. Jesus has an affection for the man. Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus has a genuine concern and affection. Even though we know God has an everlasting love for his elect, it does not reduce God's compassion, his mercy, his love for the rest of mankind as insincere and meaningless. Get that. It's not God loves the elect, that's us, the saved, followers of Jesus Christ. And then there's those. His compassion, you've seen that through the synoptics. He looked on compassion to many. He is a lover because it's in his character. God is love. Because Jesus loved him, he responded with the eternal answer that matters. The only answer that, 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 that the man needs to hear One thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus does not enter into an elaborate discussion of what is truly meant to keep the commandments, but instead he zeroes in on one specific issue that reveals the man's basic problem. The one thing he lacks. Jesus is very specific here. So you remember, in verse 20, the man says, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. But here, Jesus is pointed. 
In the Greek, it's emphatic. So here, Jesus says, one thing you lack. And if most of you have the ESV, you know, it's, it's, it's smooth English. It's usually subject, verb, object. Well, here, Mark is making an emphasis. He's saying, this one thing, he's putting it in the front. This one thing you lack. I'm not talking about all the other things. I'm talking about this one thing. It means not in addition to those other things the man has done, but the man is lacking the one and only thing necessary to inherit eternal life. The only answer to the man's question is not in the command to sell all, but the command to follow Jesus. Get that. People are like, oh, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, I have money. Uh, let me sell my house. I need to live like underneath the freeway and like not show that I have wealth and be materialistic. No. The one thing the man is lacking is that he is not following Jesus. He is not following God. He's just religious. This is the eternal answer to the man. The main purpose of this book is basically Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore you should follow him, period. He's the God-man. He has spoken. He had died on the cross for the sins who would trust and believe in him. We know that, right? The verb to follow is used 14 times just in Mark. That doesn't... That doesn't include the other Gospels. Fourteen times. It is one of many themes in this book, right? The follow theme. It is the major theme of this passage. Follow me is the same that Jesus used when he called those to discipleship, to his apostles. The point here is that a disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. They recognize him of who he is. He is God. He is good. He is Savior. He is Master. He is Lord. The eternal answer to the ultimate question, true followers of Jesus Christ will inherit eternal life. This is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And sometimes we make it complicated like, we have to have all these doctrines and stuff like that. And that's good. That's good. We learn that. But the basis of gospelizing, gospelizing ourselves, gospelizing others, is a simple fact of who God is and who we are and that we need a Savior. Recognizing that, turning from what we were chasing after in the world, and turning and chasing and following after Christ. Amen? Jesus commanded the man to do something radically contrary to what the man had been doing his whole life. His whole life. A total change in what matters. This narrative speaks on human values, right? I said that in the beginning. Human values. A change of priority. Temporal or eternal. Which one do you choose? And the man... And Jesus, as they have, they have this ultimate exchange, Jesus is drawing out what's really in his heart. 
Notice Jesus is not leaving the man without nothing. Jesus says, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. Listen, he's not leaving the man nothing. Jesus says, and you will have treasures in heaven. You guys get that? Whatever the pursuits are here, what the world throws at us and says, oh, get this and get that and all these nice things for now. But Jesus is telling the man, look, no, no, yeah, you're going to get rid of that stuff, at least the stuff that's in the way, and you're going to have infinite treasures in heaven. Jesus is offering the man everything in heaven. He's offering him everything in heaven over what the man values on earth. He's giving him eternal life, treasure in heaven. Even in verses 14 and 24 and 25, you know, that, that, that bookends to this passage here, entrance to the kingdom of God. Who wants that? Amen? Amen? So the man had the right question to ask Jesus about eternal life, and now he's just received the only answer, the true answer, the one answer to inherit salvation. It's time for the man to respond. Wealth of the world or treasure in heaven. The true test of what the man values is revealed in his fatal response to Jesus' invitation and command to follow him in verse 22. Notice, but at these words, he, the man, was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The man's response His decision to turn away reflects a greater love for his earthly possessions than for eternal life. To what God, King Jesus, is offering. The the passage is clear there. It says, why? Because he he was one who possessed much property. His response was expressed both outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly, he was saddened, his gloomied face, his appearance, his countenance. He showed it. He's like, oh, I don't like that answer. He was sad. But inwardly, he went away grieving. He left sorrowful. An inward emotion of grief as he departed the God-man. Here's the fatal response. The man is not saddened and grieved over his sin, but over the cost to follow Christ. Now, I say his sin because he willfully chose to turn away from Christ to pursue his idols. Sin is fundamentally idolatrous. His heart desired and valued something more than the Lord. More than what Jesus can offer. He wanted to inherit eternal life on his terms, not God's terms. Who can inherit eternal life? Jesus answers, those who follow me. You cannot inherit eternal life unless you recognize that God is good and you are not What a sad ending. This is a sad ending to this narrative for the man. 
But friends, brothers and sisters, this is a spiritual reality. What do you value? What really matters in your day-to-day life? That was ringing in my head this whole week after Pastor Adam's sermon last week. This morning, there are three types of people here. The first, if you're faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God. You know who he is. You know your relationship to him. He's your savior and master. You follow him. You study his word. You pray to him. You know what you need to do. I don't need to preach to the choir. You follow him. But you also have the opportunity to gospelize those seeking an answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. You have that answer. You have that eternal answer. You have the gospel. The second type of person sitting here today is that maybe you've, you're committed to follow after Christ, but you've lost. He's lost his priority in your life. With the busyness of life, the aches and pains, Everything that's getting thrown at us, whether it's financial, relational, physical, maybe we've kind of stumbled and said, man, uh, yeah, I'm not, my commitment to following him isn't really there. There's idols in our life, there's distractions, there's sin. Maybe our focus went from eternal to temporal. And look, I'm not telling you, again, to like go sell everything and give it away. You know what I mean. You know what I'm getting at. Christ has to be the priority of your life. He has to be there in all aspects. I remember what 2 Corinthians, what I read earlier, says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Value what matters most. Have an eternal perspective. Be kingdom-minded. Be sold out for Christ. Make him your priority in all aspects. January 1st, many people made resolutions. Today, you can renew your mind. There you go. Pastor Adam, renew your mind. It's not just a one-time thing when you get saved. It's a continual thing. I remember Jeff's message in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You can renew your mind, heart, and will to follow after Christ for your own good and for his glory. Remember, you have treasures in heaven, do you not? He has saved you. You have entrance into the kingdom of God. And if it means gospelizing yourself, then do it. If it means reaching out to the local church, then do it. And the third type of person that might be here with us today, 
Maybe you have been seeking the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Maybe you relate to this man in this passage today. And it doesn't mean like your first time here at some Christian church. It could be like you grew up in the, in the church setting. Here's the good news. This passage is the good news. The only way you can inherit eternal life and be in good standing with God is to have the goodness of God credited to you in exchange for your sin. What a beautiful exchange that is. That is the ultimate exchange that God is offering. Jesus takes the punishment you deserve, takes your sins, the ones that nailed him on the cross, in exchange for his perfect righteousness, you get eternal life if you trust and believe in him. This is the gospel. And I end with this in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Friends, following after Christ, after Jesus comes at a cross, comes at a cost, but also comes with eternal reward. Pastor Adam ended the sermon last Sunday with 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation for you to follow after Christ. Will you do that today? As a believer, will you recommit? As a faithful follower, will you continue to do that? Acknowledge who God is and who you are. This is God's offer of forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life by placing your faith and trust in him. Will you follow him today? Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. A passage mostly known to all of us, thinking that it's reserved for someone else. But Lord, I pray that your spirit and your word has spoken to each individual person here, to their heart, to faithfully follow, whether they've been doing it continually now, to whether they're thinking, I haven't, but that you have, but you are gracious and that you're just waiting for them to recommit, to follow after Christ. Maybe there's someone out here this morning that hasn't committed to following. I pray, Spirit, that you would move in this person's heart, that they would seek the truth in your word, Seek to know who they are in light of our holy God and that they would follow after Christ.
and that that individual would just share that with us, this local church, so that we would rejoice with them and baptize them so that they would be a part of whether this local body or another one in this valley. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.